0: Hi, everybody. This is Charlie, and this is the podcast To Hell and Back. Uh, and uh, I often say which number it is, but I'm not sure what number it is. <laughs> Maybe it's about the 44th podcast. And it's the 20th of February, 2019. And, uh, this is me in Massachusetts. Uh, and I want to let you know about the next three podcasts, <clears throat> if you're listening to this before those. Um I'm going to have a guest joining me to be part of the conversation uh, for three weeks in a row. Her name is Andrea Rosenhaft, and Andrea is uh, a licensed clinical social worker who worked for uh, I think 18 years in New York City area, and she is a blogger and an author uh, in the area of mental health <coughs> and... Um, And speaks a lot from the client's point of view because she had many many years of struggling herself with significant uh, psychiatric problems including borderline personality disorder and anorexia nervosa and she is uh, generously willing to come and talk with me for three hours about the course of her whole you know the problems that she faced and the treatments that she had and and uh, that included DBT, but also not only DBT, and kind of hopefully by the third one, some lessons that would help other people. Uh, I actually think she's pretty inspiring, so it'll probably help other people no matter what we exactly say. So I welcome anybody to tune in to, uh, to that. Um, today, um, I'm talking about, it's a broad topic uh, but I'm going to give a lot of examples, I think, to get it across, because it's one of the most hard things to get across in the world of DBT, strangely enough, because it is the first name of what DBT is in the title, Dialectics, um, and a dialectical way of thinking. Uh, a dialectical way of thinking is uh, somewhat different than than usually how we think about things, and it uh, opens doors, and uh, it itself is too broad of a of a of a process to call it a skill, but it gives rise to the opportunity to do a lot of different things, and it's particularly comes up, uh, and it's particularly useful when all else is failing, when 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 acceptance skills and strategies are failing or not doing anything. And when uh, change strategies and skills are are failing, not doing anything, and you just feel you know I'm stuck, um, I'm at a standstill, or or two people are at a standstill, or a whole system is at a standstill. So it could take uh, it could take many forms, but it really has to do with stuckness and being at a standstill in life. Um, and the idea is that it helps get things moving, or it helps have a perspective on things that allows you to think of things that you might not have thought of otherwise. So I'm hoping that will happen for some people listening. So think about stuck situations in your life, some relationship that's not going forward, it's not going backward, it is not what you want, you, but you don't want to really end it, uh, or just or a job situation like that or where you live or just something you're coping with like chronic pain or, a dis, or, a, or a disease of so, or something. Where in whatever way in life you just feel like you can't, you are just stuck, and it's really upsetting. Um, I'm going to start with a few examples, just so you get an idea of what the territory is that is covered by this, and then I want to get more uh, into what are the properties of thinking dialectically, and, and therefore what kind of solutions can come from it. Um, so here's one example. It's just from this morning. Uh I drove to Boston which is about 2 hours from here to see my um surgeon that replaced my hip uh a little over a year ago and this was a long-term follow-up visit. I was looking forward to the visit and worried about it because um even though it's gone well I would say compared to where things were at before I had the surgery I I still have not left pain behind. And so I I do, um, I can walk long distances now and I can do things I couldn't do before. I still haven't gotten to where I could do things like jogging or running or play some basketball or tennis or or whatever, but high impact things like those. Um, But, you know, I've come a good distance, but I still have pain and I didn't think I would have pain. So I feel like I've been kind of stuck for a while. Um, I I still have pain. I, I start thinking, this is it for the rest of my life. And then I think that I shouldn't have it. And I know other people who've had this surgery and they don't have pain later within the first year it's already gone and they're doing well. So I just thought, Oh damn, you know, and I feel, I wouldn't say in a major league way stuck cause I can always live like this, but just kind of a, a minor league version of stuckness and, uh, thought hopelessness and it's just not, not going to, so I didn't know what I'd hear from him. Um, And what I heard was encouraging, and I think it was dialectical by his explanation, and I'll tell you why. Um, He explained to me that the pain was understandable, that the pain, while some people don't have it by this point, a lot of people do, uh, that I'm in process, that I may not know it, I may not realize it, but my bone, my hip is changing every day. That there is this uh, titanium rod that goes down in in the bone in your thigh, the femur, and uh, that the bone then has to grow around it and sort of make friends with and get really close up and 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 take over in a way. The titanium rod, it really you really have to have a solid connection. And he said, you know every day your bone cells are um, wrapping themselves around that and doing that. And he said the pain that I describe is coming from the interface between the titanium rod and the bone. And so he said, you know, that'll continue until the bone is stronger. And when it is stronger, uh, the pain's going to go away. And he encouraged me to go ahead and do things up to a point. He said, you know, that one of the things that makes the bone grow <coughs> is going ahead and stressing it a little bit uh so he wants me walking on a treadmill on an inclined plane at a certain pace and and gradually him go up from that um and he said you know if i strain it but not strain it too much it'll it'll be ideal and it'll grow and it'll you know i'll find it'll happen if you give up and kind of back off and just say to hell with it it's not going to do it he says you know then the bone, the bone will basically stop. It'll kind of give up. It won't, it won't grow as much. It won't heal as much. So <clears throat> so he really gave me an explanation um, that uh, helped me undo my stuckness. I feel like, oh, he's, he's not saying this is it. It's done. He's saying change is going on. Healing is taking place at a certain pace. It isn't the pace you wanted, but it is a reasonable pace. And uh, here's how to keep it going um and though I, I think you'll understand after a while why that is a, a dialectical solution it really is a, a different way of thinking that's uh that's more hopeful instead of hopeless I'll give you another one um and some of you if you've been in dbt training or before you might have come across this or even if you read the book that i wrote on dbt principles um but it's just such a remarkable example. Um, When I was running an inpatient hospital uh, program in White Plains for people with borderline personality disorder, using DBT as the model of treatment and teaching skills, there was a therapist there, a real gentleman named Ed, um, who had been with Marshall Linehan originally in the 70s. And he. so he was a psychologist, he was a therapist there, and he had a certain patient who was 19 years old. Um, and she came from upstate New York and she had made a very serious suicide attempt, had been suicidal, had been sometimes cutting herself and really suffering a lot. But um, and then she would have good days and bad days. And on one of her days, she came up to Ed in the hall and said, Ed, I want to get out of here. I'm ready to leave. Please uh, tell the doctors to discharge me. And he said, well, that's great, except I can't have you do that today because just this morning you had an incident of harming yourself. So let's get past that and get you out of here. And she said, no, I mean today. I'm done. That was this morning. It's done. I'm not going to do that anymore. And I'm fed up with this place, and and I'm afraid it's going to make me worse to be here. And Ed was sympathetic to that. He said, I can understand that. Let's try to get you out promptly, but it can't be today. It's just too quick. After what happened, we have to give a little time to assess that and see what what that was about and blah, blah, blah. And she was really angry at him, and they were uh, in opposition with each other. As you'll hear, uh, two forces being opposed to each other is where you begin when you're thinking about dialectics. So there was the force of her saying, I want out of here, and there was the force of Ed saying, you've got to stay a bit longer. Um, And there were probably other forces in there, too, but that would just be one that was sort of obvious. And she would not accept no uh, no for an answer for for going then. So she said, so what can I do? I want to get out of here. And he said, well, there is one thing you can do. The one thing you can do is you could file a paper. Uh, in, in, the, a stat, it's in a part of a statute of New York State. It's a three-day notice, and give notice that you want to get out of here, and then within three days the judge has to meet with you and with the hospital staff and uh, hear, hear from both parties and then make a decision. So the judge makes the decision. We don't make the decision. She said, well, I want to do that. I want to do that right now. So he said, "Okay, you go to the nursing station and ask them for one of the three-day notice papers or 72-hour notice papers, and then you can do that." She said, "Okay." And then he said, "But, but you know what? And then when you do that, after you do that, let's you and I have a session this afternoon." Well, why do we need a session, Ed? I mean, after all, you, I, I want to leave, and you don't want me to. Said, "I know, but there's a really good reason to have a session. Why? Because I want to coach you about how to." Approach when you have the court hearing so that you can really present your case very well and have a better chance of getting out. And she was baffled by that, kind of thrown, kind of like her head was turned around. It's like, what? I thought you think I have to stay. You think I need to stay. Well, I do think you need to stay right now. Well, then why do you want to help me make an argument to get out? He said, well, actually, there is a good reason. I mean, my purpose in working with you in your life is not to make you stay in the hospital. My purpose is that you be as skillful as possible with whatever you do. And this is up to a court. It's not up to me. So I want you to present your skill skillfully. So whether you win or lose the case, you feel like you did your best job and you're proud of yourself. And, and so it and, and increases your self-respect. So, so I would like to teach you the skills for presenting yourself really well. And, and you know, and by the way, in the court hearing, the hospital has somebody that represents the hospital's position, and that's me, and I'm, and I'm good at it. So I would like you to be good at it and be a worthy adversary. So let's meet together and talk about how you might present, your, present yourself in the best way. So that was a beautiful example of where you start out with two people are on opposite ends of the teeter-totter or opposite sides of the fence or they're pulling against each other however you want to frame it and and then you go from there instead of having one of them beat the other one or win out and be the correct one uh, instead you end up with actually them staying in interaction and finding what's called a synthesis which is a kind of a middle path a way that preserves the wisdom of both sides it preserved the wisdom of the 19 year old patients desire to leave and it preserved the wisdom of Ed's, uh, you know, caution about her leaving right away. And the synthesis was to focus on her becoming more skillful. So and it just came to his mind right then. So most of us can't do that. I don't think I do that much of the time, but it was a brilliant uh, example. Let me. <coughs> I hope you're already shaping up in your own mind some uh, position in your life where you're in opposition to something or someone here's another example also from the days of that program when we were developing dbt on an inpatient program this was uh uh when I, i was the chief of the program but i also did some therapy there so i took a therapy case so it was a 15 year old girl and she uh she was somebody that uh was really sort of out of control. She would be, break things, she would throw things, she was angry, she would yell, and uh, she was obviously very miserable. Um, and uh, so the, someone from, she was on a status, as you call it, on an inpatient program uh, that required that, she, that one of the staff was with her. So one of the staff members, a, a nursing staff member, brought her to my office and when she got to my office and came in um, and the nursing staff member was going to come back when the session was done so this uh, person this uh i'll, I'll call her uh, belinda so belinda comes into my office and uh she didn't even speak she didn't look at me she walked directly to my bookcase of uh sort of built-in bookcases with lots of uh, you know books psychiat- psychiatric, psychotherapy kinds of books including all of, the, all of the works of Freud. And she, uh, through them, was started to throw everything on the floor, just taking books out and throwing them on the floor. And I said, Jolene, stop it. This has to stop. You can't do that. And she turns in a very sort of, uh, oh gosh, what's the word? She turned in a way that was kind of um, challenging and sassy and says, uh, yeah, so who's going to stop me? Knowing full well that I wasn't going to put hands on her. And uh, then she continued to throw books on the floor. And I said, Jolene, stop it. I mean, sorry, bullet stop it. And so um, she so she stood there and, and she said, well, why should I stop? I said, look, we're going to have to stop. I'm going to have to call the nursing station and have somebody come down and get you. This is not okay. This is not how we're going to do therapy. And she said, well, thank God. It's already been too long. And I said, I said, uh, sort of, stood there for a second I said yeah this is going to add up to being the shortest psychotherapy in history and uh, she said it wasn't short enough and we stood there I called the nursing staff they were sending somebody there It took a couple minutes while we're standing there I said to her because it occurred to me there must have been something a very charged about this situation like as if she's like a trapped person or a trapped animal and she's just coming in and throwing things down and that leading to getting back out again. Um, and I said, you know, this this way of being together was not very helpful to you. You can say that again, she said. I said, you know, I wonder what I wonder what way to be with you would be helpful. What are you talking about? I'm talking just about is there any way? I mean, obviously, being your therapist in this office at the at this moment is not helpful to you. But is there something that would be? sort of opening the door to a reframe of our relationship. And she said, well, if I could go outside, I haven't been outside for like two months. I said, you mean, if so, if we could take a walk outside, would you think that might be helpful to you? Yes, I'd like to get outside. I said, you know, I'm willing to do that if you don't run. Um, You know, I'm a tall guy and you're not as tall, but I have a feeling you're probably faster than me, and I'm not going to chase you. So I have to know that you're going to be safe, and you're not going to run when we get out there. Because she was pretty impulsive, and uh, she said, "I won't run if we can do that." So I decided to take her up on it. Um, and the next day we went out for a walk, um, and that and it went it went fine from there on. Though, uh, so there's nothing more to say about it because the point I want to make is. There's another situation where one person is in complete opposition with the other, at least in that moment, in that situation, in that relationship. And uh, if I had pushed to have her stay, if I had pushed to have her talk with me, if I had pushed to have her not uh, do throw the books on the floor, or if I had just sat there and validated her feelings... Uh, that might have helped, but uh, I didn't want the books to keep going on the floor. So that we were kind of at a, at a stuck point. And so you know I just decided to uh, end that, and then it occurred to me we could maybe reframe what the relationship is because maybe a different way of being together might be helpful, and it turned out it was helpful. So that was example number two for you. Um, I'm going to give you one more example because there's another aspect of dialectics. Uh, that it brings into play because uh, i'm gradually teaching you without naming the things yet the properties of dialectics and i'm going to be naming four properties and i think i've sort of three of them you can see in what i've said so far um, one of them is that in dialectics you always begin with stuckness you always begin with some place in your life, some relationship in your life, or even something between two competing visions of life in your own head, where you're just at a standstill and you can't move forward or can't move backward. And so there you are; you you have a logjam, so to speak. And um, and and if you so the first look at that logjam, the first look at that conflictual situation, you try to sort out as best you can to identify the what is in opposition with what. You know, Belinda Belinda's desire, whatever, I never understood fully what it was, but Belinda's uh, impulsive actions of throwing books on the floor was in opposition with my wanting to keep my books in the bookcase at the most superficial level. Um, and uh, and obviously Ed's patient uh, wanted to get out of the hospital and he thought she needed to stay a little longer. So, you know, so you have a opposes negative a and that's a formula in dialectics because dialectics starts out from the concept that the world that reality is filled is is in a sense created by opposition that a, that that x creates negative x that there are electronic there are uh, there are uh, particles, negative particles that are called electrons that are part of matter, and there are positive particles that are the counterpoint to them. There are positive and negative poles of a magnet. There's a matter, uh, and and physicists have learned that there's something called antimatter. There's men and there's women, male and female. Um, there's light and dark. There's heat and cold, and there's and uh, when, and when somebody makes a statement in a group of people, almost always someone in that group is holding the opposite idea. Uh, And sometimes that idea came out of the opposite idea because the idea in dialectics is that something gives rise to its opposite. I mean, you see it in families. One person says one thing and then another uh, one kid says one thing and the other kid says, no, I want to do that. Or no, I don't want you to do that. Or, just is so natural it's not just kids but throughout everything opposition is natural so that's sort of property number one is you're looking for when there's tension when there's conflict when there's stuckness when things are standing still you can pretty much bet that if you can dissect it out you can identify uh, one thing and then another thing that that's the opposite all right go and then that's that's what you heard in some of these examples then um, what's interesting about dialectics and what really makes it creative and, and fruitful is that uh, rather than just taking the position of, oh, let's figure out which of these two opposing forces is correct, which one's right, which you might call an absolutist philosophy, and also there's another philosophy that would have a different point of view, a relativist philosophy. And with a relativist philosophy, you'd say, well, these two opposing forces can both exist on their own right or in their own right. And they don't need to oppose each other. You don't need to choose between them. And you don't even need to have them necessarily interact that much. But, you know, there's sort of coexisting of opposites. That's not dialectics. What's specifically dialectics, which is this next property, is that... um, if, is that there is something valid. It's assumed that there's something valid on each side. So uh, the one force, if you can look deeply into it, there's something about it that's just true. It's a true reaction to the universe. It's a true reaction to the other person. It's an understandable reaction. It's a valid reaction. And then the op- opposite force has within it a valid core. Uh, so there's, it's, it's understandable, it's valid, it makes sense. And they're opposing each other. So the idea is that you have two opposing forces and, and each has some validity in it and they're c- colliding. And if you create the right conditions to allow them to have a little bit of period of time where they, neither one has to be given up, and they can coexist for a little bit of time, but they are in interaction with each other, that you will move probably towards what's called synthesis. So that Ed, Ed Sheeran's movement in that discussion with that 19-year-old patient uh, moved from her side, which he treated as valid, his own side, which he treated as valid, and then he landed at this idea of what I focus on is to help you be more skillful, which is kind of the middle path. It didn't challenge either either side. It, so the idea is you validate both sides, you you honor each side, you see truth and wisdom in each side, and then you bring them together and you have them uh, interact. And if you can uh, put up with a little time and a little space and a little freedom. Uh, around it, then there's a good chance that something will emerge that's creative, some kind of a synthesis, some kind of a middle path, some kind of balancing act that gives credence to both sides. Notice that that's not the same as finding a compromise, where each side gives up half of what's important to it. You try to do it in a way that preserves the essential truth of each side, and it comes out that you have now a new situation, a new Uh, product uh, that has both sides within it so uh, I think those the examples include that And the examples include one more property of dialectics which is the understanding that even though often things look like they're standing still and often in our lives we feel we're standing still that nothing ever is standing still not one sub particle of the universe that things are always in motion always in motion Every cell in our body, every molecule in our cells, uh, every atom in our molecules are always in motion. Every thought we have is actually gradually transforming. Even though we might keep saying the same thought again and again, it's now on a slightly different subterranean platform. And so things are always changing. That's part of the idea of dialectics is that things are colliding, things are in opposition, things are changing. The way my bone in my hip and the titanium rod are gradually even now over a year later gradually working on a new relationship with each other that'll be helpful um, to me if i can create the right conditions to allow it to go on bone and rod um, organic non-organic and these things are now forming a synthesis uh, in my hip which is going to help help me be going in the direction I want to be going so change is constant opposition is present uh, validation of both sides is important and finding synthesis or allowing synthesis to come into being is part of dialectics Now what's the other thing and what's this next example <clears throat> it is that it's the one final, Major ingredient of dialectical thinking or dialectical processes, and that is systemic thinking or what's also called holistic thinking. The idea being that um, if you isolate any one entity in a larger system, like I'm an entity in my town and in my family, or, you know, my elbow is an entity within my body. But any entity, anything that you identify um, is part of a larger whole, part of a larger whole, and therefore in relationship with other parts of that larger whole. You're in the same family, you're in interaction with others in the family. You're in society, you're in interaction with others in the society. And there's a million versions of this, right? So that everything is part of a larger whole. And everything has within it parts. There are parts within me, uh, biological parts, psychological uh, parts. There's, you know, so that er- everything is, is connected to everything else, either as part of something <coughs> as um, or being the, the, a whole thing out of which there are many parts. And so as part of that idea that everything is interrelated, then every Uh, thing is uh, affecting everything else. So a change in one part of a system is going to result eventually in changes in all of the other parts of the system. And therefore, if you're really stuck, try to picture two entities that are stuck and polarized and opposite each other. Just picture that as if you're seeing two little dots on a piece of paper like two dots and there is a force between them where they're opposing each other but now start filling in on that paper a million other dots all around those dots that and, and assuming that they're all connected to each other so actually now it, the picture looks different it's not just two isolated dots fighting it out it's a much it's two dots where there's tension between them in a much larger systemic situation and therefore you have more possibilities of how to effect change how to find synthesis how to move on from being completely polarized right i mean as soon as you involve a third element instead of just two you've now multiplied the possibilities of what could change everything um you might you know so here's an example a family example. I've also given this elsewhere um, many, many years ago. <laughs> I sound like a very old person, and I am an older person than I thought I was. But um, <laughs> when you go to the doctor, they have to have to tell them when your birthday was. Um, and so when I when I was a, a early on in my psychiatric days, I would go to a conference every year to watch a family therapist who was famous and who I was just. Uh, enthralled with his work. Uh, Carl Whitaker was his name, and he would come to this psychiatric hospital in Connecticut each year where he would talk and he would do a family interview in front of everybody, and then we could see that and learn from it and talk about it. So this one year, he's sitting up on the stage, and there's about 300 people or so watching, and this family of four is sitting opposite him up on stage, two brothers and two sisters, all in their mm, late 30s, 40s, Sort of that age range. Why were they there? Well, one of the one of the two sisters uh, was hospitalized at that hospital, and she had been there for three months, and she hadn't spoken and they didn't know why she wasn't speaking they didn't know if she was depressed if she was psychotic if she was just not wanting to speak if there was something organically wrong they just couldn't figure it out and and yet there was no evidence before that that she was not someone able to speak so they weren't sure what was going on and they just decided you know what we don't know what to do with this situation nothing we're doing is helping we are stuck so let's see if Dr. Whittaker can interview her in the context of her family and maybe see if there's a different perspective. Um, so in other words he you know there was just her and the hospital there and now there is her the hospital and her three siblings and Carl Whittaker so you've changed the system you've brought alive one part of the system which then creates potential for something different happening. And then indeed it did happen different. And, and here's how he went about it. He sat up on the stage and he didn't say hello even to the sister, the, the one who was the patient at the hospital. Uh, he said hello to all of them. And then he turned to one of the brothers, who was a the guy who was a, they had, both brothers worked in insurance. They were executives. They wore suits um, there and they were kind of high functioning, smart people. And so I'm very willing to help their sister. So there they are. And he said, turns to one of them and says, um, hey, um, I want to ask you something. Is there anything you think you could get out of a family meeting or a family therapy? And the brother said, well, I'm here for my sister. I would do anything. So whatever you think will be helpful, I'd be glad to do that. And and Whitaker said, no, what I'm asking you is, is there anything in your life that could be improved by being in a family therapy session? You know, I I know you're here for your sister, but anything in your life? And he said, and and the guy was a little bit annoyed and said, look, I'm here for my sister. I'm not here. My life is fine. It's going very well. I don't, please, I don't need to get into anything else. I'm just here to help. How can I help? And Whitaker then takes it a step further and became uh, sort of shockingly insulting uh, all of a sudden, and uh, he said, because the guy was a little bit overweight, like not terrible. But uh, so Whitaker says, well, you know, I was having the thought, I wonder if through family therapy somehow, you know, you could get rid of some of that fat that's around your midsection. It was like, whoa, you could just see this guy was instantly furious at, at Whitaker and, and, and didn't know what to do up on stage, embarrassed in front of everybody. And Whitaker says, you know, I was just thinking, you know, if you have that kind of fat around your body, you could have that kind of fat around your heart, which will then shorten your life. So maybe through family therapy, you can sort of get healthier. The guy said, I didn't come here to be insulted, blah, blah, blah. He was very angry. So Whitaker said, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm really sorry. I think we should move on. He moves on to the next brother. The next brother is not sort of chubby. He, the next brother is actually kind of tall and thin and a little stiff looking. So Whitaker does the same thing and says, would anything you could get out of family therapy? And he said, look, just like my brother, I would, I'm would. i here to help. Whatever you think, my my life's actually going very well. Whitaker says, well, I wondered actually if family therapy could help you not be so stiff because you just the way you hold your body and the way you talk, you just seem like kind of stiff and I'm not sure you're having all the fun in life that, life has to offer so maybe if you did family there so the guy is insulted and he's angry (gasps) he starts to say something back to whitaker in an angry way at that moment the woman who's been in the hospital and hasn't spoken for three months starts laughing and she starts laughing uncontrollably and she's sitting next to her sister who starts laughing and the two of them are laughing and holding hands. And they're like, they seem like they are in sync with each other, and they're laughing until they're practically crying, and the brothers are looking stunned. And Whitaker is just sitting quietly. And then when the laughing slows down, he says, What, what is, what are you guys laughing about? And the sister who hasn't spoken in months says, Oh, it's just so amazing and so funny because when we were all kids, those two things are exactly what we used to make fun of our brothers about. You know, that this one was a little overweight and this one's a little stiff and I can't believe you just said that. And then it's just a riot that they're at. and it's right, It sort of brings us back to our childhood. And, and the sister, is, her sister is also seems very engaged about it. And Whitaker says, you know, the, the two of you seem very close, you and your sister. And then the patient says actually not and it suddenly the tone just changed radically to being more serious it's actually not i'm not I'm... we used to be really close but and then he said what happened she said ever since she's had kids it's just never been the same like she's never available she's always busy she's always overwhelmed and so i just don't have my relationship with my sister anymore whitaker says that's really sad she says well, it leads me to to think maybe one thing that should be done after this consultation is that your sister should also be admitted to the hospital along with you. And the two of you could be in the hospital together and sort of uh, re- recover your relationship, which I'm sure is still there, because look at how much fun you had right, right here. And, uh, and so and that was the uh, essence of the consultation was a discussion about that. So again, here, here's a fabulous example of complete stuckness Stuckness to the point of a symptom of not speaking, and then stuckness within the family in a sense, but quietly, so no visible stuckness. And then Whitaker didn't know what would come of what he was doing. He just knew to do something different. He knew to try to set the stage for something different to happen, which is an important thing when you are stuck. The the thing about being stuck in life with things is that it seems unbelievably tempting for all of us to just keep doing the same thing we're doing thinking the same way we think uh, and doing the same things we do and when in fact it just reduces the possibilities of creating a systemic change and so you know the idea uh, that dialectics also depends on a background understanding that everything is interrelated and everything changes everything so you know you can change almost anything and it might change the thing that won't change. Um, just made me think of another example. I was once seeing a patient in my uh, office, a psychotherapy office in a previous place I worked. Down the hall, there was a room where patients would go to a group to learn skills, but, but I was seeing a patient individually. And uh, during that time, the patient just was hardly speaking. She would just look down at the floor, and she wasn't speaking enough, I tried what I could try within the room, I just different ways of being with her and asking questions and validating her and being gentle and then being a little confrontational. and Nothing was going anywhere. And then I was in a team meeting and I, I was explaining this problem and then the person who runs the skills group says, oh, that's weird because in the skills group she's very talkative and comfortable and makes good contributions and she doesn't seem that uncomfortable at all. I thought, oh... Huh wonder what that is. So I just thought in the middle of the individual therapy session, I said, Would you be willing to go with me down the hall (laughs) to the group room? And we did. And we stood actually we stood rather than sat in the group room and I asked her a couple things and she was noticeably different and she's talking in the way that they told me she is in the group. And yet I'm with the same same person. So what is that about? Well, I don't know, and I still don't know, except that I, within the group room, she was more conditioned to being talkative, and now I took her to the group room, and even with me, where I thought she wasn't that talkative, she became more talkative, and so we started meeting, uh, scheduling our sessions to meet in the group room, where there was more room, and there was also standing rather than sitting, at least some of the time, and writing things on a blackboard some of the time, and so it just had more movement to it. So there was a, a shift based on just trying to change some variable in the context, which was actually the room we we're meeting in. I mean, other things could change by adding another person to the meeting. And that happens sometimes. I've seen teenagers sometimes that are absolutely, they just won't speak. But then they'll call me and say, can I bring my friend? I'll say, sure. And they come in with their friend and their friend is speaking and then they start speaking and then they start speaking more. So in the context of having a friend there, uh, everything changes, everything changes. So this is this idea about dialectics. that such, such a powerful idea is that the world is made up of opposites, that these opposites are in dynamic interaction with each other. They're pushing each other the way the negative and positive pole of a magnet can push each other. Um, they both can attract, they can repel, they cause turbulence to go on. And you can get really stuck between two entities or more. And, uh, and then you try all your ordinary things and they don't make a difference, at least no visible difference. They obviously do make a difference if you believe that change is constant. But they don't make much of a difference. And then, and then you decide to introduce a different ingredient because you're trying to create new conditions where these two opposing forces can each be seen as valid, each be seen as okay in their own right, be given some space and given whatever contextual changes are necessary to allow something different to happen, and then follow something different happening. It's not easy to force a synthesis. Synthesis, kind of like jokes, have to work. They kind of have to just come out of the circumstance has been my experience and the best syntheses arise when you allow them to arise uh, rather than get forced together uh, by putting two opposing forces together so um, so this is the back the backdrop and it's a lot of what I wanted to say today but um, let me just see I put some notes down of things that I might want to now expand on from this but you've you've got the idea. Oh, well, I just put things down like examples of being stuck or at a standstill. Like, let's imagine this one. You're in a prison. Of course, this is a great metaphor because we're all in prisons. We're all in prisons of our own behavior and our own lives in different ways. And so we don't always experience that. But sometimes we do experience that we're stuck in a prison. And so let's say somebody's in an actual prison cell and that's one, that's reality. It's a certain version of reality. And then there's this opposite that's there that creates tension, which is the person, of course, wants freedom. They don't want to be in that cell. And so there's a tension between uh, being in a prison cell and yet wanting freedom. And it's not always an easy one to get out of. Of course, in that situation, you're, you're sentenced to prison. But even in our own sort of self-sentenced prisons that we're in, I mean, it's sometimes very hard to get freedom and get out of what we're stuck in, whether it's relationships or, or jobs or, or psychological states. Um, and so in that prison cell, I mean, if you, if you took the two ingredients, there's the prison cell situation, and then there's the person wanting freedom. And you certainly would say you can validate that the prison cell is restrictive. It does take away your freedom of movement in so many areas of your life. Narrows your freedom of movement, if you think of movement physically, as, you know, down to a very small area. So it's valid to think that it's a, it's a prison. It's valid to think that it's constraining and it's difficult to be in there. It's also valid, if you look at the other side, to want freedom. And anyone can identify with that. So you want freedom. You also can validate. So you validate both of these sides. What kind of synthesis could come that could make it feel less bad, less stuck, less of a standstill? I wonder if you can think of how you would reframe this or how you would think about it or how you would think about what is a synthesis that preserves the value of freedom. <laughs> and yet it also preserves it in the context of a prison cell. And if you let yourself think about it, we're not going to just sit here and think without me even being able to see you. <laughs> uh, but but if you let yourself think about a little bit each of these sides, think, okay, a prison cell, okay, yeah, it is restrictive. But if you think more about it, yes, you can validate that it is restrictive but, you know, there's another aspect of it, which is that there still is space there. And human beings are not, are not just uh, physical beings. They're psychological beings. And so you could, you could think, yes, there is prison, but in another way, you still have enormous uh, unrestricted movement in your mind to go all kinds of places, including places you've never been before. Things you can think about, things you could read, uh, things you could do there um, because you don't have other competing things going on. So there would be possibilities of thinking of this situation instead of thinking, oh, my God, I'm stuck in a prison cell and I have no freedom. Oh, my God, I'm stuck in a prison cell and I have no freedom. Just like imagine, you know, like thinking of a relationship. Oh, my God, I'm stuck with this person. (laughs) <laughs> and I don't have freedom and I didn't see it coming this way and you just go over and over that and actually you start with what's valid which is there is a restrictiveness there and there is a desire for freedom you start with what's valid but the more you stick with it and stay with it and, and the more you get stuck with it the more you kind of pile on additional intensity of of uh, and, and, and despair and Oh, my God, I'm going to be in this prison cell now for this many years. This is terrible. I can't believe this. How did this ever happen to me? You could go on and on. And and the way I think of it uh, metaphorically is that you get this opposition between two valid opposing forces. And then the more you uh, catastrophize about them, you kind of create an inflammatory condition, an inflammatory reaction where each side is now inflamed and actually is presenting in ways that aren't totally valid. It is not true that you have no freedom. It is not true that you can't do something that you've never done before. It is true that you're not going to be coming and going physically in the same way. But the more you just emphasize the catastrophic aspect of being in the polarized situation, the more your brain freezes up and can't generate a synthesis, a middle path. Because the middle path there might be, well, I'm going to be in prison for this length of time. And it's really painful. It's really disappointing. And it's really restrictive. And at the same time, there's still certain kinds of freedom that I absolutely have. My soul, my heart, my mind are still very free. And actually, sometimes freedom can be maximized when you're in a confined space. Those kinds of freedoms. So... Um, so you could reframe your situation, and I'm not saying it takes the sting away from it, but it does open a door, and often we are just stuck because we can't open a door. We want someone in our life to change. You want your child to change. Your child is having trouble. Your child is not thriving. Your child is struggling. Your child is in pain, and therefore you are struggling and in pain and not thriving and it's really terrible and uh and it just keeps bothering you and it wakes you up at night um and you and you just feel like oh i'm i'm locked into this situation where they can't do anything to help my child with what they're suffering with and uh and 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 you just you're preoccupied with it so actually the child's stuckness has multiplied into the parent as stuckness it may have started in the parent i don't know it depends on the circumstance and so you know it gets to that point and then you feel like i am in the prison of my child's pain and my concern for my child and you really have to stop and think wait a minute what about my child's pain what is the nature of my child's pain let me understand my child's pain and i don't seem to be able to get my child out of pain and therefore it isn't true that i have nothing i could do because actually i still there still are options if you let your mind calm down the inflammation on both sides of the opposition and let it settle down to the valid core of each side but without additional uh, intensification amplification then then uh then you might be able to think, okay, let's just let these two things, let's, let's let me be with my concern, and let's let my child be with what they're doing. And let's see if we can do things in a different way, or just sort of be with this in a different way. And you never know, a door might open. Like I, with one of my children, I've had the experience of really wanting to help him in ways that he doesn't want to be helped by me. Uh, And just doesn't seem to work, and I keep thinking, "Oh, if only he did this. Oh, if only he did that." But he's thinking, "Dad, I would never do this. I would never do that." And so there's a kind of a there was in the past, but there was a kind of a stuckness about it. And then um, then I was just sort of like thinking in this way about it, letting it settle down, trying to bring my emotions down trying to bring myself down to just seeing reality and seeing how these were opposed and what, what his reality was made up of and what my concern was made up of. And at a certain point, something just occurred to me. I just thought, you know, let's do things a little differently. Why don't I just stop trying to change him? Stop trying to offer suggestions and just go be with him. You know, sometimes just go be there, you know, Where In a situation where I normally wouldn't have been before, because it's like him doing his own thing, playing video game or something like that, and it's sort of not a a great interest of mine, but I thought, he's a great interest of mine, so I thought, okay, why don't I just go hang out with him? Why don't I just say, hey, let's have lunch sometimes, and then go have lunch, and then um, not push anything on him? Um, So that kind of the synthesis was, be with him, but stop pushing. And that actually led to a little bit of of softening of the situation, as well as I just think improvement of our relationship, which was definitely worth worthwhile. So that'd be just another example. Um, Boom, 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 boom. There's so many situations of opposition that I'm just—it's tough because I want to anticipate what the ones are that are most relevant. To You you can certainly write me emails about this sort of thing to c.robert.swenson at gmail.com. Oh, and by the way, from having uh, done a, a request to you trying to teach interpersonal skills and use them with you, um, I got a number of wonderful emails back of just feedback about the podcast and what works, what doesn't work, and suggestions about uh, about doing something that allows a little more reciprocity and I haven't had a chance to implement any of this yet, but um, I really think I'll move forward with something like what, what several of you suggested, of having a, maybe a, a periodically a webinar uh, where we can all get on our computers on, and use a Zoom program, which anybody can use um, as long as we have it. And um, and and let anyone get on, so it's face-to-face, or you can see me and I can see little pictures of you, um, and we can have dialogue, just discussion about things that have been taught in the podcast or, or anything we want to talk about, and then maybe occasionally have a live conference uh, on to hell, is, to hell and back uh, that people could come to, again, not not a, just a professional conference, but for anybody, uh, any individual, any patient, any family member, any therapist, anybody, any, any anything, <laughs> any alien that's visiting from the moon or mars or venus or whatever so anyway just want to tell you thank you for writing writing me some things um let's see if there's anything else I want to say and otherwise we're just going to stop in a minute <coughs> uh boop 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 Here's another. Here was another example that highlights another aspect of this. Um, years ago, when the whole direction in society of learning about transgender t- transitions, people moving from one gender to another, um, there was a family that asked to come see me, and it was a mother, a father. And a, uh, a, a teenage boy and, uh, say, st- around 16 and then around a 20 year old boy who was transitioning to being a 20 year old girl. And I didn't know that when they came in, but that was, uh, that, that was the presenting situation and the presenting problem was stuckness in the family because it was very painful for both parents. To be as they experienced it, giving up their older son—that they were losing him. Of course, they were gaining a daughter, but they were losing their son, and they just couldn't. And they just were worried that he would regret this later, and etc., etc. But but he was insisting now on being called a she, using a she pronoun, and changed uh, his name to a her name and uh, wanted the family to use that I wanted friends to use that and, and, and had a support group and was pursuing medical possibilities. And, and uh, the mother, painfully but very movingly, was attending conferences, was watching things on YouTube, was uh, reading things, anything she could get her hands on to learn about the transgender thing and then talk with her. New daughter, her transitioned daughter, about this whole thing, and while it was painful for her, she was going through a process that included some grieving and some learning and some new behaviors on her part. The father, however, was not, and that's where things were stuck, and that's why the mother asked if you know, I, if I could see them. The father was totally refusing to even look at his his transitioned daughter. Uh, he certainly was refusing to use a female pronoun or a female name, and he just thought it was a terrible idea and that she was going to regret it, and it was not natural and all of this stuff. It was very intense. And he was very stuck, and the, and the, trend, the 20-year-old daughter now was uh, very stuck with relation to him. She just didn't even want to talk to him. And they used to have a really good relationship, like really good, a delightful uh, relationship between what had been father and son. And um, it's totally. It just it went kept going back and forth with the mother, the father, and and the twenty year old, and w- and in the session I found we were very stuck. And then we had another session. That I still felt, wow, we're really stuck. I thought, you know, what am I going to do? And I thought, think systemically, Charlie. Yes, there is this dyadic opposition and and uh, paralysis, you might say, between these two people. And the mother's doing a different thing, and she's trying to be kind to both of them and be an intermediary, but it's not helping their stuckness, per se. At least it's not yet helping it. And so nothing was happening that seemed to be in a good direction. Um, And I just decided randomly to turn to the 16-year-old boy. The 16-year-old boy went to a private high school and uh, was a really uh, good student, a good athlete, had a good relationship with the father. And uh, I said to him, what do you think about your, you know, brother becoming a sister? And he said, to everybody's surprise, because no one ever asked him anything. And I, I just asked him because I didn't know who else to talk to in the room because it was so stuck. And he said, I don't see what the big problem is. I mean, anybody who's known my brother, who I love and I've always looked up to, anyone who's known him our whole lives knows that this makes sense he was always kind of like a girl you know in a really good way and it's sort of like even when he was like a little boy and I was a little boy I mean so I don't see what the big fuss is I mean he maybe he's finally found what he needs to be and uh, the father was you know, the father who'd only been looking down during the session looked up and you could tell was really tuning in to what his younger son was saying And it was the turning point in the family Discussion. The Father started to show some interest and willingness, and it, you just, you know, so you're always looking for that other missing piece. When you think dialectically, one of the ways you think is, what am I missing? What is the missing piece here? What would help move things forward? What would be a piece of the puzzle that will help put things together? And so that was another example of that. So I didn't teach any specific skills, but I hope that this way of thinking dialectically would be helpful to you in some way. I'd love to get feedback about it, and and I hope that you'll tune in starting with next week, next Wednesday, um, for three in a row, or you can watch them on the on the website or something uh, of of conversations that I'll have with Andrea about her experience, uh, her experiences being on uh, innocent both sides of the therapy situation. Okay? Be well, everybody. Bye.